Hello, and welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help guide and grow you in your walk with the Lord by providing an in-depth study of God's Word. So please grab your Bibles and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with this week's message. All right, I hope everybody got through the, the train that was stuck there on Rosedale. Um, I, I said, man, that's a, that's a great time for a train to pick to, to go one mile an hour past, the, past Rosedale. Wow. Yeah, then they back up and then they sit there. And, and it's like they do that every time. I'm like, well, do you, do you realize you're, you're blocking traffic? I guess not. They don't care. Um, no one cares anymore. No one cares. They don't care. Anyway, uh, okay, let's start. Let's pray. Uh, let's go before the Lord and pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to come together. We thank you for, for all the fellowship we can have and, and to be with one another in this crazy world. And it is good to be able to be with like-minded people and who understand your word. So, Father, as we study, we pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that you would illuminate us to be able to apply things and live it out before you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, um, uh, we're finishing up the, this last December with spiritual warfare, and now we're looking into the tactics that Satan takes towards believers and how to offset that. And these tactics are pretty... Uh, um, they're pretty, pretty evil. They can do a lot of damage. And, they, and uh, if you don't know how to spot the things, it can end up uh, ruining you if you're not careful. Because uh, what happens is uh, Satan finds useful idiots to use. And uh, I don't mean that even in a derogatory sense, but I mean it in, you know, they just don't even know they're being used. Um, and that's a, a coin, you know, word that was coined by just pawns that don't even know that. Well, um, the thing is, you need to be able to spot it. You need to be able to discern it and understand what's going on. And sometimes <coughs> you have to see, obviously, the human dimension in it. But you, in, in the, these days and times, what I would say to you with all the evil that's going on in the world is that you need to take a stand back sometimes and look that it's beyond the, the person doing this. This is something bigger than the person, which is a spiritual issue of demonic influence or, or whatever it might be. But um, we talked about Satan <coughs> promoting division in the church. That's the big thing that he does. And um, here's the, the new things I wanted to start with. So the first thing on this list I want to look at, uh, want you to notice, is the division starts when a group or a person decides to take one of the leaders down, uh, whether that's in a Bible study, whether that's in a church, <coughs> whether it's a prayer group, or, or whatever. You can see this in society that they target the leader typically. And it's a, it's a well-known practice. Even Jesus mentions this, and it's mentioned in Zechariah that if you strike the shepherd, the sheep will scatter. And that is well-known in the spiritual world, so therefore they go after the head. And this is why um, things that happen to your family typically are meant to attack the head of your family. So uh, everything will come 
in order to take down the head. So the head is the man in the family. So everything will be driven to take him down because if you can take the leadership down, then everyone else is unprotected and basically becomes pawns in the hands of Satan. And, uh, you know, we go back to Adam and Eve. That's why he abdicated his role as head and let her lead. And that's what got Adam and Eve in trouble, obviously. So it's always directed towards the head. So if you want to know tactics, um, even like in your own marriage, you'll think that your wife is being attacked, and she will, but it's really to get to you, the head. And so the, the Satan will attack your family. He will attack your kids. And he, he not only is using that to attack your kids, but he's using that to attack the spiritual head. So that's, that's where the direction has to, you have to understand that. It's not just simply directed towards your wife, guys. It's not just simply directed towards your kids. It's a you issue. You are the key to take down. That's why in the, in the church world, Satan has been able to effectively uh, take down churches because he hits the pastors and he, the pastors that are getting trained in the seminaries today end up going and taking over these churches and destroy them because they're being used by Satan. So he already has his pawns, his useful idiots in his hand and he comes in and just, they derail a church. I can't tell you how many people have, t have told me that they used to be part of a good church, they bring in a new pastor and whether or not he's wearing skinny jeans, um, comes in and he ends up torquing the church. And, based, and I'll, I'll tell you what the strategy will be if you can, you can see this. It will be, we need to reach the young people, so we're gonna do that at the expense of the old people. Okay, have you, have you seen that tactic? It's a very satanic tactic. It's foolish to do that. Because the, the, the saints that are more mature are to be used in the congregation for the edification of the younger saints. That's how it works. To separate that out is insane. That goes against all theology. That goes against a Titus woman. That goes against a Paul-Timothy mentorship. That whole thing. But yet that's what they'll do. We gotta reach the young. Look, sorry, dude, you're not reaching the young. I don't care if you light yourself on fire. You're not reaching the young. Because I already know what the, the, the younger group is trying to do. You, you reach them with the same tactic you've always used, you know, with truth and with the gospel. It, nothing, that doesn't change. Well, Brandon, your methodology's changed. Well, what do you mean my methodology's changed? Yeah, that's one thing is, yeah, I'm on the internet. That's a methodology that's changed over the years. But I'm not going to change my methodology in the sense that I'm going to compromise my values in order to reach people. That's what you don't do. And that's what churches are doing. So uh, when they turn the church into a worshiptainment, you know, um, you know, uh, smoke and lights, laser beams, all that other junk, Elvis impersonators, you know, Michael Jackson's thriller, those types of things. Um, and the new latest one from Hillsong, they're, they're, and Hillsong's a cult. Uh, the latest one from Hillsong is they're doing three three wise men visiting Jesus, but one of the wise men is a girl. So I'm, I'm thinking like, hey, do you, do you ever read the Bible? It's th we, we generally say it's men, okay? That, that the wise, they're wise men, not wise women. How did you miss that? That's even in your English. 
But anyway, I mean, they'll throw up their a girl. I mean, I'm, I'm waiting for next to them to throw up a transgender or something like that. Who knows? But um, anyway, what, what, what happens is Satan uses that leader to divide the church. So all of a sudden the church gets divided. Now we've had a few churches here in town that have been divided by bad leadership. They come in, they take over, and they jack up the church, which has been a longstanding, maybe conservative church or whatnot. And now all of a sudden, it's no longer that way, okay? Whether it's wokeism or whatever is being introduced. So let's talk about taking down spiritual leadership. The concept of taking down spiritual leadership is found in Zechariah, and it's found in what Messiah said. And it's, when you strike the shepherd, the sheep will scatter. So leadership and authority is a big deal in the spiritual realm. And so you have to strike at the authority, and then everyone else will follow suit. Okay? So the attack then will be used by someone in the congregation or someone wherever, if it's usually an attack on the inside, by typically an immature Christian that is practicing legalism in their lives and doesn't have a full grasp of the scriptures. This individual will not respect authority. In fact, they follow their own dictates, they follow their own agenda, and they think they know it all. Okay? even though they're a baby or a carnal or a worldly Christian. And that is the person that Satan will use to come against leadership. And they'll have a, they'll have a following. So the first thing they do is they get a following and then they come against the, the leadership and try to take leadership down. Now, if the leadership's too strong, it, it, it will not f- work. It, it'll fail. But if the leadership is weak, it'll take down the leadership real quick. So even in families, you have to watch for this, guys um, and ladies, that weak men are easy targets, okay? So let's talk about about this. Even in the pulpit, I see a lot of weak, feminized pastors. They're feminized. They talk girly. Have you heard them? They talk, they don't even talk like a male anymore. They soften everything and they start changing their pitch to be higher. Now, I don't know why they do that. I don't understand it. I guess it's to sound more non-threatening, less masculine. I don't know what that's about. But there's techniques that people will do to feminize their message, okay? Um, what'll happen is, When you have a feminized speaker and you compare them to a biblical speaker that's speaking in a masculine way, the biblical speaker will seem aggressive to them. Okay? Aggressive. Whereas the flowery guy, he comes off and he's like a big teddy bear and, you know, he's, I can, I can, I can handle that guy. But here's what I want you to understand. I'm speaking to all the males right now because that's who the target is, is you. There's an element in you that you have to be seen 
with meekness. And that ain't weakness. What is meekness? It's the bridling of a horse, that there's tremendous power, but that horse can check themselves. It's checked, but there's tremendous power. It's the concept of having a sword, but it remaining sheathed. But people know you can pull out that sword at some point in time, but it remains sheathed. And the key is to, to, you don't ever usually have to pull out that sword as long as they know you have a sword. Okay? If they don't think you have a sword, you're projecting weakness. And that's who they attack. Humans and the spiritual realm. The true sword is how you handle the word of God. Right? And they, they must understand that you, with the word of God, are a threat to them. And I'm talking about spiritual warfare. I am talking about when someone's attacking you. I am not talking about giving the gospel out or anything like that. I'm talking spiritual warfare. And what does that mean? Look, the enemy is going to go after soft targets. That's who he goes after. People that don't know their Bible. People who don't know how to wield the sword. They don't even know how to put the sword in, in the sheath. But when you know the word of God and you know it well, it is like standing there in spiritual warfare with a sword that's sheathed and they know that you will pull it out if need be. You see what I'm saying? And that sword stays there because they know how you, you, you use it. And what me, it means is you speak the truth in love, there's no doubt about it, but they know you hold truth and they can't contradict it. They can't out-argue it. And to those who want to attack you, they will be very much afraid to do that because they know you handle the word. Okay? That's what fights the wolves off. That's what scares them spiritually. So like in the demonic world, if an individual in the demonic world is recognized in the spiritual world as knowing how to rightly divide the word, I can tell you what the reactions of the demons are. What do you think? Many times they're afraid. And it's not because the person is imposing and, and it's not because the person's more powerful. It's not. The person knows the word of God. And so therefore, you know, the idea of being deceived is not, it's not gonna happen typically. Um, the person knows what it's grounded on and that person becomes someone they don't wanna mess with, okay? I'm not saying that they won't be harassed. I'm not saying you won't be harassed. But who are they gonna go after? Soft targets, okay? And so if you want to stop a lot of these attacks on you personally guys you've got to know how to wield the sword you've got to know the scriptures backwards and forwards you've got to know how to apply it and you have to know how to apply wisdom wisdom is very difficult wisdom means that you know how to apply truth at the right time at the right portion and at the right person 
And if you don't know how to do that, you're not using the sword correctly. Okay? So, weak leadership is the reason for apostasy. It's the reason for compromise. It's the reason for all kinds of false doctrine because it typically falls on a weak leader that can't put false doctrine down within his church, within his congregation, within the seminary, within the Bible class, within the prayer study, within the, the Sunday school class. It, the weak leadership doesn't pounce on error and lets it go, right? And that's what starts happening. So my admonition to you guys is you better carry a sword, a spiritual sword, and you better know how to use it. Because if you don't know how to use it, it's useless for you. Everything is there for you in the scriptures to be able to wield the sword and to know how to do it. And if you see Jesus in his ministry, he, he, he wields the sword beautifully. When they see Jesus, he is meekness. He is power under control. He's very intimidating because of that. Yet, at the same time, he's very, he can be very gentle. But at the same time, he's like David in many ways. David is the poet warrior. He's soft to the humble, but he's a lion to his enemies, right? And he has that, that back and forth, that, that warrior poet in David, which you see in Messiah. Grace to the humble, resists the proud. And you have to have those dynamics going on you, and other people have to perceive it. If they don't see it in you, they will say, that's an easy target, I'm going to attack. So that's the, the whole point of spiritual leadership. Spiritual leadership is not um, being on steroids and you know being this impressive man that scares people physically because try being on steroids with demons and see how it works. Because they're not afraid of any physical power that you might exert. They're only afraid of one thing, the power of God. That's the only thing they're afraid of. And they know that authority. So it's, it's not so much physical looks. And, and that's the thing about the kinds of leadership you see you know, being perpetrated, you know, uh, in our culture, that's, that type of leadership that leads from behind, it looks impressive and charismatic or whatever, that doesn't go very far in, in the spiritual realm. It just doesn't go. And that's why even Jesus, the whole, the whole picture of him, he had no form of comeliness that anyone would be attracted to him, right? Same thing with David. Uh, versus Saul. Saul was what? Handsome. He was tall. He, he was charismatic, right? A typical world leader. But Saul was a failure spiritually. So you don't want to really get caught up in, it's the, not the looks. You don't have to be, you don't have to look intimidating. And, you know, and, you know, ride a Harley and, and wear chains and, you know, a leather vest with no shirt on underneath and those types of things. That, that's not going to get you anywhere. It's the individual that knows the word of God backwards and forwards. Okay. So then if they can, 
if they can see a weak leader, then what do they do? They will promote their agenda, their vision, and their way of things through the weak leadership, okay? Let's talk about how it affects the home. If you have a weak man in the home, generally speaking, the woman then will dominate, not because sometimes she wants to, maybe that is the case, but other times because she's trying to fill in a gap. Either one is wrong. But what ends up happening is the main person that will bring in things that the family shouldn't be doing will be through the female. Why? Because it's the same strategy that Satan used in the garden. He went through the female to introduce the problem. And so I'm not, I'm not saying this is, this is a, uh, there's, you know, I, I, let's, let me put this out. Um, there are exceptions to the rule, but when you see the principle in scripture, there's not too many differences from what the scripture is already saying is a principle. And so what I typically see with what happens in families is the woman gets control of the situation and then somehow false doctrine ends up coming through her by some book, some Bible study she's involved in, some women that she hangs out, and then before you know it, it starts torpedoing, torpedoing the family and turns the family upside down. Men are clueless that this is even happening if they're not leaders. They're not aware of what things are being brought into the home, not only by the wife, but by the children. And so they're not aware because they're checked out. They're not paying attention to their family because they're not leaders. And so because of that, the home gets torched and things start happening in the house and spiritual things start happening and it messes up the house, messes up all the relationships. Now, that being stated, this can happen at work. This can happen at employment, wherever you're at, when you have weak leaders. Weak leaders are the most frustrating bosses you could possibly have. You want a strong boss and you want a fair boss. You do not want weak leadership because weak leadership compromises. Weak, weak leadership doesn't hold people accountable, doesn't hold people responsible. So leadership is where they go, okay. And so then what this person will do to take down that leadership is be critical of the methods the, the leader is using, be critical of the vision of the leader, be criti uh, criticize the call of the leader, the practice of the leader, and the standards of the leader. And that's what they do. And that's how they form their posse. Now, because many leaders are, are pretty well versed in the Bible, I'm talking spiritually now, um, they can attack the person's theology. So then they'll attack their, their, their vision, they'll attack their methodologies, they'll attack standards. So, for instance, um, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, the end of that chapter, gives the church the freedom to have the kind of standards it needs to have based on the, the, where, they are, where, they, where they are at in history, what time period they're in, what culture they're in, what country they're in, okay? That's why there's a lot of flexibility in the scriptures about church governance because there's a lot has to do with the environment that the church is in, okay? So there's certain standards that each church must have according to scripture and then 1 Corinthians 14 allows each local church its own authority to develop its own standards 
in the culture in which it, ar- it is in, okay? Each church has that autonomy to do that. Now, we're not talking about legalism. We're talking about what standards do we expect out of the, our people in this local congregation, okay? So, um, I'll, I'll give you some examples of stuff we've had to deal with. So, at a certain point, we had to deal with the concept of how many times can a teacher or a deacon miss church? Okay? Because we had people only showing up, like, only when they taught, like 12 times a year. And they only showed up to church when they were, their time to teach was up. We had people, deacons, missing, I don't know, 45% of the Sundays. So what, so what are you supposed to do? Have no standard and say, you just come whenever you want? Now, these are leaders, right? These are teachers of the Bible. These are deacons and stuff like that. And yet we had a hard time early, uh, in the middle of our history and early on that we had people that didn't like standards being put on them. They wanted to come and go as they wanted in high positions of leader. I'm not talking about the regular person out there attending. I'm not talking about the person not serving. I'm talking about a deacon, okay? And these deacons wanted to come and go as they wanted to, and we finally said, hey, man, this is, this is ridiculous. These are supposed to be leaders of our church. They're supposed to be teaching for our church, and we can't have them showing up half the year and half the year gone. So we had to put some standards down, Okay? The standard was, and we just, again, arbitrarily made this up because I have the authority and our staff has the authority to set a standard. And the standard is, well, okay, you have to be here if you're a deacon or a teacher at least 40 Sundays out of the year. That meant, that meant I gave them 12 Sundays to miss as a deacon, as a teacher. We thought that was fair. Other churches have 45 Sundays that you, that you have to be there if you're a deacon or a, or a church leader or a teacher. And other churches have different standards, okay? But at some point, you gotta have something, some standard to say if you're in leadership, we require this of you. You cannot just have people doing anything they wanna do. And the minute that we put down some type of standard, oh, that's legalism. No, you don't understand what legalism is. Legalism is about doing things that you think will not only gain salvation, but also help you in your spiritual walk. Legalism never, never helps you to grow. What I'm asking is, you need to be an example to the congregation, and you need to be here. I don't think that's out of line, and that's definitely not legalism in the, in the biblical definition of it. But what happens is, when you throw those standards down, on whatever that might be, the immature revolt and protest because they, don't, they want the positions, but they don't want the responsibility. Does that make sense? Okay, so then, so what do they do? They criticize the church's methods. They criticize the church standards because you can't criticize me on my theology, so you'll go, you have to go after my standards or you have to go after my methodologies. And we've had people come from other churches that don't participate in understanding any of the signs of the times. They don't even understand prophecy. Their churches don't even talk about current events. 
They come over here and they say, I wish Brandon would stop talking about current events and stop talking about prophecy. And I want to say, well, then go back to where you came from. Why did you come here? But what are they trying to attempt? They're attempting to change the vision of the leader. And that's not them. And I've had conversations with him. I said, look, dude, you're not changing me. I was called to this, and that's my call. You're asking me to give up my call. I said, I'm not the right church for you. I'm not. Our people are not the right people for you. You won't fit in here. So, but th this is where I'm saying is, weak leadership does not have the guts to say, we're not the right church for you. Weak leadership would say, okay, well, I'll try to tone it down and I'm, I'll try to make you feel as comfortable because we want a mile wide and an inch deep and we don't want to offend anybody by the things we say. So I'll zip it as far as what's going on in the culture and I won't scare you with prophecy anymore. That's what weak leadership would do. And there's plenty of them, plenty of them. So that's where, if they can't go after you theologically, they're gonna go after your methods. So let's, let's talk about your personal life and let's apply it personally. They will go after how you're parenting, okay? They will go after how you deal in your marriage. They will go after whatever. Now look, there are black and white issues in relationships, but a lot of what I see happening in relationships and couples is they're, it's their methodologies, it's their standards, and it works for them, okay? I'm not talking about biblical principles or anything like that. I'm talking about gray areas that this is how they choose to do things, okay? And you, you cannot judge them for the, in a gray area. I can judge them and you can judge them in a black and white area, but not in a gray area. So that's what that family does. So what's, what ends up happening, I see, is people see that and then they start making judgment calls on oh, I don't like how they parent, or I don't like how their relationship is, whatever. It's not your call. But see, what they start criticizing is your standards or methodologies. I think you're being too strict, Brandon. I, I mean, I get that from, uh, you know, um, my own family. <laughs> I, I, you're just being too hard on the kids. You're just being too hard on them. No, I have standards. I don't parent the way other people parent. I parent the way God leads me to parent. And I don't, I don't I, even family, well, you know, you, you know, what do you do? Let your kid uh, uh, do anything they wanna do? I, I at least have some control, I think. With teenagers, you never know if you have control. But you, 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 you have to pretend you do. Um, So anyway, you know, you have, that's where you start realizing that. Okay, so these people then start forming factions against you. And they don't like your standards. They don't like your methodologies if they, if they can't get you on your theology. And so they're just going to do, you know, a faction. Well, you know, you know, Brandon seems too strict. And, you know, Aunt Bessie was saying he's too strict. And I just don't know. Those poor kids, you know, they're going to hate him when he's older and, um, of course, they're pastor's kids. He expects too much of them, yada, yada, yada. <clears throat> Look, they won't shut up, will they? they? They go, and then they talk to another family member. Who cares what Aunt Bessie says? 
what do I care? Aunt Bessie doesn't even, it, it, who is she? Who is she? I don't even know who this person is. And you're talking about, well, you know, you see what I'm saying? They'll do that to you. And that's an, a shot at leadership, okay? Then they'll form the faction against you by talking to Aunt Bessie. And then it, it further goes uh, on and then it starts degrading the proper theology. And what I mean by that is they will start attacking you eventually on your theology. Not at first, but eventually they will. We have seen people that were hook, line, and sinker, sold out for Rock Harbor, completely apostatize. Completely apostatize. I mean, just drop their theology that they have been taught and go after some heretical type of theology. It's weird, man. I've never seen, it's hard to imagine. But then, you know, when you drop your theology and you go after heresy, guess what ends up happening in your morals? Your morals are attached to your theology and you're, so then the morals of the person goes down the tubes as well. And, and, and it's like you can follow the line. So you apostatize theology, theologically and then you, eventually you apostatize into immorality and you think it's okay. But this is what they attack you on. And then they promote it and if you allow them to stay, they will do this around you. And before you know it, you have factions in the church like you had in the Corinth church. Or you have factions in your family. Or you have factions in you know, people dealing with you in your marriage and stuff like that. So it's very deadly. Of the, the seven deadly sins, the, the last one, number seven, I think I've mentioned this before, is the greatest of all of them. And it's the sin of causing division. Causing division is, the, is one of the most deadliest sins of the seven deadly sins because it what it does to people. And so with that being said, that's where you, you end up going with these types of individuals and what they end up doing. Now, let's go into the next category of how Satan tempts believers. We obviously know he tempts, but what are the specifics in this? Well, the first one you will see is he will tempt all of us to lie. Okay, he will tempt all of us to lie. Now, what is behind lying? That this, I mean, it's almost habitual for some people is the way they manage life. But let me, let's, let's, let's explore what lying consists of. Lying consists of, first of all, is that the person is afraid of the truth. The person is afraid of the truth. That's why they lie. Okay? Now, why would they be afraid of the truth? What do you think? What is the truth? Why is the truth so painful for them? You have to take a position. True. They don't want the backlash from taking a position. Accountability. Yeah, Michael. You're good. He said it, okay. Accountability, responsibility. So for instance, teenagers are habitual liars, okay? That's just what they are. 
I mean, um, when they turn 13, and even up until 25, they have temporary insanity. And um, they, it comes back to them. Their sanity comes back. But um, they just don't think straight. There's a lot of hormones going on, a lot of weird stuff. But then the te- teenager, who used to be truthful when they were younger, turns into a habitual liar. And you're like, dude, anything out of this guy's mouth, I, I don't even believe, man. I'm going to be here. I don't believe that. Okay, so they start the, the, the lying process. The issue then you have to think about then, apart from this temporary insanity, is why are they afraid of telling the truth? Because normally what they're doing is wrong, and they're afraid of the consequence. So many people grow up as an adult managing life through lying because they're afraid of the consequences because they always are breaking the rules. So in order, if you're gonna break a lot of rules, you gotta lie to cover yourself up. That's why addiction and, addi- and people in addiction are perpetual liars. You are not to believe people in an addiction because they will lie to cover up until they're finally out and they're rehabbed and all that stuff and they come back to normal. But in the addiction, forget it. They're a perpetual liar because they're doing wrong and they have to cover it up, right? When Adam and Eve sinned against God, what is the first thing they did? They hid and made aprons to cover up their genitals. So they have to hide themselves from God because they're ashamed. And so in essence, by making the fig leaves and the apron things out of the fig leaves or whatever, um, they're covering something up. And in essence, the fig leaf, apron, or whatever you want to call it, whatever they formed, underpants or something, I don't know. Um, I don't know how they did that, but it was... That's the idea of covering with a lie. And what was the lie? The lie is they're naked. I mean, sorry, the truth is they're naked and they're ashamed of that. And what they did as a consequence is they realized they're naked. Remember, that's a whole big deal. What does nakedness represent in the Hebrew mind? It represents vulnerability, okay? So lying gives people a way of covering up their vulnerability because of committing wrong. And then it can go even further than that. Not just simply committing wrong and them knowing it and covering it, but a perception. A perception. Now, let me explain this. The perception can be as powerful as trying to cover up a legitimate lie or, or, or a, a bad act, I should say, a sinful act by a lie. And what do you mean? Well, a lot of people grow up with issues of rejection. And, and, and they're worried about this. Uh, this rejection, and they're worried about their parents rejecting them, their grandparents rejecting them, all this other stuff, okay? And so then what ends up happening is the, the child 
is not living up to what he thinks he should or she should be doing for mom and dad, and they're, they're not getting the straight A's, they're, they're not performing well or whatever, whatever the issue is. And so in order to assuage that, that, that rejection that would come from not performing, they lie. Okay, so if they, if they got a C on a paper, they'll say they got an A, and they'll lie, or whatever, you know, to, to cover up that, because they're fearing rejection, and they don't want the rejection, so they gotta live up to mom and dad's standards, and so they will perpetually lie all the time, okay? That has to do with kids with abandonment issues, that has to do with kids that have rejection issues, right? They're performing. And in order to perform, you have to lie if you're not meeting expectations. You'll see this in business. They grow up with the same mentality. They go into business and they say, did you get that report done? Yeah, uh, but you know, it's on your desk and it's really not. Or they were supposed to complete a project by Friday. They're not done. They drag their feet. They lie. And that's typically it, people in the construction business. Have you ever tried to remodel your home? These guys are perpetual liars. Oh my gosh, there's not a shred of integrity. You gonna finish today? Yeah, it's finished today, three weeks later. I, I, we did some remodeling, it took like nearly a year. I'm like, oh my gosh, I just wanted to change the faucet. <laughs> and, 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 and it's ridiculous. Why is this guy stringing me out, man? And so, you know, but where did they learn that? Well, they're having customers, who could live like that? I couldn't live like that. They're having customers call them, when are you gonna get this done? Where are you gonna get, oh, I'm getting to it. You have to constantly lie in order to keep your customers happy. But here's the thing, if you live by integrity, just do the job and shut up and get it done and, and be on your way. But it all comes back to when they were a child a lot of times is this is how they con their parents into thinking they're good, they're, uh, at, they're meeting the standard by simply lying. And then they, they grow up and they carry it into an adolescent. Uh, sorry, they carry their adolescence into adults. Do you realize there's a bunch of 45-year-old people that act like 12-year-olds emotionally? And what, what is that? What do we call that in counseling? Arrested development their development has been arrested and it's the, when they started lying. And they've learned to manage life through lies. So the first thing that's easy to get people to do is to lie, to cover up, or at least to perform. And, and so that's why. What was Ananias and Sapphira covering up in Acts 5? They did wrong, didn't they? So they lie. And Peter says, you haven't lied to God, uh, me, you've lied to God, referring to the Holy Spirit. And then he strikes him dead under church discipline. Okay. So here's the, the, the principle. You have lying and lying, why it's a reward for those who lie is that it gives temporary relief. It gets the others off their back. It gets them meeting a standard short term. That's why people gravitate to lies is because it's short term relief. 
but it kills them long-term, if that makes sense. It catches up to them. So short-term relief, which is exactly how sin is, it's enticing because there's pleasure in it and it gives short-term relief, but not long-term. The person's character, every time they lie, their per, that person's character is being destroyed lie by lie upon lie upon lie. And to where you get to the point of being like, like a politician, right? You turn into a politician because all they do is lie, right? And, 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 and look how pathetic they are at the end of their lives because they don't champion truth. They don't love truth. They champion lies. And so, um, obviously, if you want to live a better life, you have to lie less. You have to love the truth and, and deal with the pain in the short term that truth does bring. But in the long term, truth wins out. And you have the benefits of truth later on. But anyway, that's one temptation. So you have to know your own personal makeup to protect yourself from lying. Otherwise, it'll become habitual. Okay. To commit sexual sins is the next category. This is another easy thing in which Satan attacks human beings. Now, um, in the spiritual realm, this gift that God gave human beings to procreate, it, you have to see it on the scale of how immense this gift is. It is something very envied by fallen angels and Satan himself, the ability to procreate. Because he, more than anybody, would love that ability to continue to have more and more fallen angels, okay? Because it builds an army for him. And it suits his advantage to have more and more. So he's limited in that sense. So, he goes after our most powerful gift and he perverts it. He twists it, uses it against us. And the perversion now with what we see in society is, a, is an all-time low. It's, we're way beyond Sodom and Gomorrah at this point in time. Uh, our culture's in the pedophilia now and saying this is normal, okay? That's how low we have become. That's, that's, again, causing humans to commit sexual sins. Okay, so what's the big deal, people will say? People have sex, and they're not married, or people commit adultery, what's the big deal? Let's talk about the spiritual aspects of it, why it is such a big deal. In order to bond correctly to human beings in the way that we are designed, you must go through stages until you bond physically. Our culture says bond physically and we'll do the other stages once we're married. It doesn't work. Here's the stages. You must bond emotionally, you must bond mentally, you must bond spiritually before you can even think about bonding physically. If those stages are jumped and you bond physically, something detrimental will happen to you. Now let me explain. 
in the courting stage, you know, how God's designed human beings, you court and you find out, are we emotionally a match? Are we spiritually a match? And are we um, uh, mentally a match? Okay, those are the three areas have to agree with. They have to correspond. Because if you're not a match in those three areas, you shouldn't get married. Okay? But what happens? Satan puts the cart before the horse. The people bond. They think they, they're, they're in love, and it's not. It's actually eros. It's not agape Philadelphia. Okay? So there, there's four types of love, okay? Agape, Philadelphia, Storge's familial love that you have with blood family, and then you have Eros, okay? If you jump to Eros, that's all emotional driven. It's all emotions. That's all it is. That's what Eros is supposed to be in romance, is, is emotion. Okay, that's where the passion comes from. That's where the Song of Solomon, you see the passion in the romance, in the married state. Okay, so you have agape, which means self-sacrificing love must be established with the couple. Friendship love must be established with the couple. And if we're gonna bond and become family, I must start learning how to store gay with you even before we're married. Okay? If you do that, then it just leads itself into a natural of physical bonding and consummating the union, and the two shall become one at that point in time, okay? Because you have all elements bonding, and the last one is physical, okay? When the couple physically bonds, mentally, spiritually, all, all the, 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 the things that are necessary, there is a metaphysical aspect that happens in the bonding and, uh, and the way I can describe it is this, that if that physical, metaphysical bond is broken, the way the Hebrew words are, and it, like, uh, or, sorry, um, um, the Greek words are, and where Jesus said, let no man separate, the idea is of gluing two pieces of paper together and then trying to rip that apart once it's glued together. Okay, those, taking those two pieces and ripping them apart. So if you use that illustration that the Greek is trying to tell you, what is it saying to you? Is that, it, yes, you, you, can, you can take the two papers apart, but what will happen because they were glued? It destroys the individual paper, and there's parts of the one paper on the other that's bonded and there's parts of the other one that's bonded and you can, you can unglue it. A piece of the other person goes with the other one. Okay, you can't get past that. That's what the Greek is trying to say. And so when God says the two shall become echod, one, it is that gluing of the, the, the two people together in a metaphysical sense that when the two are separated, it leaves a part of them with the other one. Even if the other one dies, a part of them will go with that person, okay? Because they're bonded, okay? So 
Satan knows this, and so what he gets people to do is to bond physically so they can have the medical then a physical bonding, but then rips them apart as they go on to serial monogamy or whatever it might be with other partners, okay? So think about this. You have multiple partners, 10, 15, 20, whatever, before you're married or whatever the thing is, you're leaving a piece of you with every one of them that you can't get back. You can't get it back. Okay? So what ends up happening to the person inside? They're fragmented internally. They're fragmented and fractured inside. What do you mean? Well, here's how you will see it. That person will not be able to effectively bond to the person they marry. They'll bond to some degree, but it will not be 100%, because how can it be 100% if they left part of them on these other bonds? So they might have the potential bonding to 70%, or I'm just putting these figures out there, 75%, 80%, maybe 90%, maybe 95%, I don't know, or maybe 50%. But it affects the person's ability to bond with their future spouse. Hence, once they're married, the other spouse will say, I can't connect to him. I can't connect to her. You're right, because you can't fully bond. We're gonna work on that in counseling. We're gonna work on that of trying to get better. But here's what I have to say to you. This is why you don't do that. Because it leaves permanent damage to the individual. You can get better, but you'll never be 100%. And that's the reality of what Satan is doing in the realm of sexual immorality. He's making a bunch of broken people that can't bond relationally to anybody. So think about how, can they bond to their friends in a certain way? Yes. Can they bond to their kids to a degree? Satan is destroying the God-given ability to have relationships through sex. Destroying that will destroy humans' ability to have relationships. Have you ever noticed how you, there's a person you know in church and you just can't connect and they won't connect? That, that person doesn't have the ability to do it because they're messed up. And it's, it, it, again, I wish someone could have told all of us this when, before we entered teenage years. I wish someone could have told us this. But the youth pastors were more worried about, you know, uh, climbing rocks and, and throwing pumpkins off the side of a, a, a thing that God, you're, God says you're a pumpkin, rather than talking about deep issues. The church really did that, by the way. Their, their whole thing is, you're a pumpkin for Halloween. Your car, God carves you. And then at the end of it, you, you threw your pumpkin off the wall. Yeah, that's how juvenile, uh, some of the junior, uh, not junior highs, but youth programs are. Anyway, um, so when you have a society now that is full of sexual immorality, there is no wonder why it is so easy to divide people. It is no wonder why people 
typically don't have good relationships with anybody. This is why so many people are isolated and would rather stay on so social media because it keeps people at a distance. They're not good one-on-one. -on -one. This is why singleness is becoming a norm for the young people, especially in Europe. They're all fragmented inside. Now, again, can you learn techniques and, and learn the biblical principles of doing this? Of course you can. But again, it's like King David. Can, could King David build the house of God? No. There was a consequence. Could Moses see, or go, sorry, go into the promised land? No. He was forgiven. David's forgiven, but yet the end, at the end of the day, the consequences play out and it fragments the people. Now, let's explain something else in the area of sexual sin. Sexual sin, because it's tied to your chemistry, has the ability to release dopamine in you and, 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 and all kinds of things that make you feel good, okay? So because of that, it could become addicting. And that's where a lot of our culture is. They are addicted to the feelings. And here's the thing. Um, I think they did this study, and it was in one of our um, men's uh, videos, I think, that the, the, the rush of dopamine that someone gets by looking at whatever and, or doing whatever is like a doing a line of cocaine, okay? Now, I want you to think about it. With drug users, you can start with that line of cocaine, but the next time you use, it's not enough. You've got to do it just a little bit more. And then you gotta do a little bit more because you're not getting the same sensation. And you do more and you gotta get harder and harder and harder until you end up killing yourself almost, okay? The same is true in the sexual arena if addiction starts. This is why people go from sexual immorality to heterosexual into deeper levels because they need a hit. They need a bigger experience. The problem is the bigger experience in the sexual arena gets into weird stuff, okay? To have this bigger hit. So you shouldn't be shocked that our culture has moved into pedophilia for the hit because 60s and 70s was about free sex and then the gay movement started in the 70s and then you had the 80s and, and, now, and now we're here, okay? You shouldn't be shocked as a culture that we're in, that people are now into pedophilia and now it's being approved because that is the lowest degrading thing you could do but as an addict, it would make sense because it has to get weirder, it has to get just more bizarre to get the hit. So Satan knows how to play this game. He knows how we're made. He knows what, what the chemicals are released and this is why he targets it. And this is the most deadly area of all sins.
Now here's the thing. How do you deal with this? Okay? Because it's, it's everyone's problem. To be able to harness the sexual expression, it's very difficult to harness. Well, you get some of the clues in uh, the scriptures, obviously. One clue is what Joseph did. He physically removed himself from the temptation. That's pretty good. Because Paul will say, flee from youthful lust. The idea of flee is, this is the only sin you're told to get away from physically. Why? Because given the right environment, given the right mood, given the right temptation, that means all of us are vulnerable in this area if given the right circumstances, okay? And so the only thing you can do, you're not gonna pray your way out of that. When he says flee useful lusts, he means get physically out of there like Joseph did. Remove yourself physically. And that really is a smart thing to do. You remove yourself from the environment. You also do not put yourself into environments that can cause you this way. Here's what people do. I'm good, I've been sober for a long time. Let me see and test myself. I'm serious. And people will test themselves. See, I'm not affected, I'm not affected. I'm not, oh, I am affected. Because it, it, it's, it's, it's an area that, you're, that, that is, is full of so many emotional issues that come from it, loneliness, rejection. I mean, you've got all this emotional baggage and if the emotions get involved, it will overwhelm your theology because you won't think straight. And you, that's why it's such a hardcore thing. And obviously Satan uses it against people. It says in Proverbs, many of kings have been taken down by this. It's true. Think about this on, in, in the, uh, the political world. A lot of these guys are, are, are bought off. You understand that, right? And they're bought off because they sent a woman to them. No joke. I've talked to people who are lobbyists, have been around the politicians, and they say, Brandon, right off, right off the, the, the floor of the house, they go right next, and here's a company, whatever company it is, and they're whining and dining them, and they, they send these high-class prostitutes to them. Then they have the thing with the prostitute, and now the company holds it over their head. You better do what we want you to do, or we'll expose you. They find your weakness, and they exploit it in politics. If it's money, they'll exploit it there. If it's women, if it's men, they'll exploit that there. And they use it against it. That's why a lot of these politicians won't do anything, because they're being uh, either paid off, or they're being extorted because they sent a woman to them. And they don't want to expose that to their wife and their kids. Wouldn't this be bad? Look, here's the pictures. The stuff you see on TV, yeah, that's what the lobbyist told me, that that's what they're doing right there on Capitol Hill, right, at, right off the, the, the floor of, of Congress, in the rooms of the Capitol, in the rooms of the Capitol. That's how bad it is because Satan knows how to get people. Okay, um, let, 
me save that for later. We'll do that next week, I think. Okay, any questions on that? I know that's a lot to take in. Um, all good? Yes. Let's get a mic to him. So uh, back to the, oh, sorry, the legalism topic. Okay. I grew up in a Southern Baptist convention, or convention church, and I got in trouble a lot as a kid because I didn't wear a tie to church. And I was told constantly, like, throughout my whole time growing up that it reflects who you are on the inside if you don't dress nicely for church. And it never sat well with me because you know, there's examples of people in the Bible who are godly and they're just not dressed right. With that, I was taught a lot of things growing up that were legalistic. What are some studies that people can do who struggle with legalism? Because you just fall right back into it a lot. It's almost like a default button. And so like, what are some things we can study and do to help us along with that? Good, good point. Um... I think you have to, re, you know, you, you, you have to look back and understand the legalism you went through. I went through the ultimate legalism with the Catholic Church. I mean, everything was works-based, okay? So, for instance, let's take that, Southern Baptists. Um, can't dance, can't drink, have to wear ties to church, right? What else? Um, can't chew, can't smoke. Can't go with girls that do. What's, what's the whole thing? I wouldn't, would you ever date someone, a girl that chews? That'd be, that's nasty. Okay, so you have to ask the question then, why? Why? I gave you an example of a standard for a church. Like, hey, if you're gonna be a deacon, you gotta be here 40 Sundays, just for leadership purposes. But why would they make you wear a suit and tie as a little guy? Why do you think that was doing? Was it making you more spiritual? Or what were they saying? It was gonna, you gotta project outwardly what's inwardly inside of you? Okay. The, the problem with that is wearing your Sunday best is Americana. I'm not saying anyone should show up to church like a slob either. But wearing your best is an Americana, but I'll tell you where it derives from. It derives straight from Babylon, okay? I'm not saying that people who are dressed up for church are Babylonians. Don't get me wrong there. I'm not saying that. But it entered into the church after Constantine married the church with the state, okay? And then they said to the peasants, if you're coming in here, you need to dress upright. You need to have your Sunday clothes on. And that was early on in the fourth century, okay? So I'm not saying people in America are doing that. I'm just saying sometimes people don't know the history of things, okay? But if dressing up shows you my inward, then I can fool you. And if it's all outwardly, that's exactly what Jesus got onto the Pharisees about. So the, the concept of what kind of clothes you wear needs to be dependent on what the person is trying to project, okay? So for instance, that's what the Pharisees did, projecting out outward spirituality with their clothes and dead man's bones and all corruption inside, okay? But also, Paul would then balance it out and say, 
ladies and, and he would say, you need to be modest. So he, he didn't talk about dressing down like a bum, but there's also not dressing to the nines to be fake about it, okay? So it comes down to your heart. And here's where freedom is at. You don't want to attract attention by wearing too nice of clothes because that's called ostentatious wealth and you're not to do that because it makes people stumble. And you're also not to look like a bum because that also makes people stumble. So you must find where that is and then you dress according to that. But notice what I've done for you. I've showed you the extremes, but I said your freedom's right here in the middle. And that's how you should make that, that decision. So you have to take all those things you went through. Um, like, like for instance, let's, let's take the Southern Baptist, don't dance. I get the intent, okay? Because the way people dance is very sexual, okay? But try telling that to the Jews when they dance in front of the Western Wall on Shabbat. Or try telling that to a Messianic congregation that they do have Messianic dancing in the Messianic congregations. You can't, you can't apply that rule. So I understand the intent. The problem is if intent goes beyond the individual and goes say, you all will not dance. Well, that's crazy. You can't make that, that for everybody. Um, and you can't make it for certain dances either. You know, the waltz, or, you know, dancing at a, a, a wedding, you know, a slow dance or whatever. There's plenty of appropriate dances. But see, the Southern Baptist may say, all dancing's wrong. You can't, well, that's legalism. Obviously, if I'm jerking and twerking, that's wrong, <laughs> right? That would be totally wrong. And you're not to do that, obviously, because of this sexual gyration. It would be like a dancing akin to uh, Her Herod's daughter, or Herodian's daughter, dancing for Herod to make him cut off the, the head of John the Baptist, right? That would be on that, a seductive type of dance. So that would be obviously wrong. Um, let's take another one. Um, women have to wear skirts. Why, why does that convey spirituality? I, I don't know. I mean, it's just, you start seeing, you go through that, and like, that doesn't make sense. Why would... So you have to go through each legalistic thing you went through and unpack it and realize, okay, what were they trying to do? What was the motive? And if it was, I mean, think about this. Fundamental churches had hairology. Did you know that? Fundamental churches had hairology. Yeah, H, like your hair. Hairology. No joke. So here's one of the the the... the commands. If you're doing a comb over, okay, it must be two inches from the ear that your comb over can come over. But it, you, can't, you can't go below two inches off of your ear because that would be wrong. I kid you not. There's a whole teaching in the fundamentalist churches on hairology. Guarantee it. Guarantee it. So you, you have to look back. Okay, so here's the funny thing about this. 
the more mature people will be the less legalistic. They'll, they'll have the more freedom. The more the immature person is, the more restrictions they have. Because for them, their world, in an immature world, their world is black and white. And, and see, black and white world and black and white thinking is easier. Well, it's just wrong. It's just wrong. What's wrong? Going to R-rated movies is wrong. Well, I've seen Schindler's List. It's R-rated. So I guess according to your rules, I couldn't go see Schindler's List because it was R-rated because of the killing of the Jews in the Holocaust. Well, that's stupid, right? Who makes a blanket statement like that? It, it, a more biblical statement is what's the content, right? And whether that content is edifying for me or not, right? But see, what you have to understand is black and white-ism is easy because I don't have to think. I don't have to challenge my faith. Well, it's just all dancing's wrong and I move on. All going to the show is, is wrong and I move on. Not wearing a three-piece suit is wrong. It's just no thinking. And so legalism is attractive to black and white thinkers. That's what you have to understand. So if, you, if you're fall back into that, really it's not the attraction of legalism, it's the ability to not see the gray. And no one, no one wants to be a black and white thinker. You do not want that. That is juvenile, right, in your spirituality. You have to weigh things out as they are. So I had, um, what was the question I had? Someone was asking me about um, you know, Christmas decorations and stuff like that. And uh, my thing is, well, that's a gray area. That's up to you whether or not you want to have Christmas decorations. And, um, well, you know, the Christmas tree has its origins and pagan roots. I said, okay. I understand that, and I know the history behind all of it, but is that what someone's doing right now in 2022? And, and so, just as I mentioned, you know, I know where, like, Sunday's, Sunday, Sunday uh, clothes came from. I'm not doing what we call a genetic fallacy. I'm just saying I know the origin of it. They typically don't. But it doesn't mean I'm going to judge someone more for wearing a three-piece suit to church or a tie or whatever. They can do whatever they want to do. But let's, say, let's take the Christmas tree thing. People say, I'm offended by a Christmas tree. Why? Because it's pagan. I said, you're committing a genetic fallacy. And a genetic fallacy means that I'm taking what someone practiced hundreds of years ago or thousands of years ago, and I'm using that standard to judge a current practice, which is called the genetic fallacy, means you can't do that. Because the way someone celebrates a Christmas tree, they're not thinking of pagan deities of Saturnalia. They're thinking this tree represents Christ, the green it represents everlasting life, the light on the tree represents the light of Christ, so forth and so on. I said, so you must judge the Christmas tree on its current usage according to the Bible and then make your decision. And my decision has been, I don't, I'm not offended by that because people are not putting that kind of meaning into it. If it still offends you, then so be it. Don't do it. 
But at the end of the day, this is where you have to understand, am I being legalistic or, or am I truly convicted and I, I shouldn't be doing this? You make the choice. But I will say this, whatever your choice is, it will reflect where you are spiritually. The more mature can eat meat sacrificed to idols. Because as Paul would say, what is the meat? It's a big, no big deal. I have no problem eating it. To the weak, they would say, no, I can't eat that meat because it was sacrificed to an idol. Why could Paul eat it? Why could he say it's nothing? It was nothing. Okay, because there's a genetic fallacy going on in the, in the time period. The meat was sacrificed to an idol. Okay? Once it was done... They took it to the market to sell it to eat, okay? There's a time delay. Paul is not eating the meat on the altar to the deity. It's been used, and now it's being sold on the market as edible meat, okay? The one that's offended by the meat in the market is doing a genetic fallacy and saying, well, that meat was on an altar, and it was sacrificed to a deity, Yes, but Paul's saying, I'm, I'm, it's not being sacrificed now. It's just meat. It's, it's disassociated from the genetics, origin of it. What they did there was wrong, that's true, but selling it just as a piece of meat is no big deal, and so he said, I could eat it, but I'll, refer, I'll refrain from doing it if it causes you to stumble. But the, the genetic fallacy is happening with the, with the, the immature believer, because the, the immature believer is saying, that was sacrificed yesterday at an altar. Today it's being sold as meat. So if they're connecting the timeline together, which is a genetic fallacy, by taking what was done to it and, and, and applying it from this day to that day. And that's the problem with the, the, um, the sorry, the immature believers in Corinth is because they did, they would not, Separate the two. So that's a key thing in legalism. You have to understand that. Okay? All right. Are we any questions? You're all good? Go ahead, man. Uh, we had an online question. It's asking, what if the husband isn't a believer? Will the devil go after the wife? Uh, <clears throat> not necessarily. But, they, but um, the wife needs to protect herself. And the way to protect herself is if her husband is not the spiritual authority, then you go up the spiritual authority ladder. Okay? On spiritual decisions, okay? So in that case, you tell me who the woman's next authority line would be. Not her father. She's The two has become one. She's out from that authority. What other authority? So you have the family authority, and you have the, the husband, but he's checked out because he's not a believer. So he's, he's still the authority as the man, but spiritually, he's not there. So she has to submit to another spiritual authority that's above the family. Their pastor, her church, with those who have the authority over her as overseers. So what I tell single women uh, or, or in situations like that is then submit your spiritual decisions to your pastor and let your pastor work with you on spiritual decisions. 
again, we're not talking about like balancing your checkbook with a pastor or, you know, should I go take a vacation or anything like that? No, on spiritual decisions, then she would go to her upline, which is the pastor, which is the next level of authority, right? And then she would submit to that authority of the pastor or, uh, you know, one of the pastors at the church and the advice would go out spiritually. Well, this seems to be the more biblical route to take. This is what you need to be doing. There, it's that simple. You just go to the next level of authority, okay? And there are always that level of authority. There's always gonna be churches. There are always gonna be pastors. So that's what I recommend. So good question out there on YouTube. What else, we all good? Okay, let's take a five minute break. We've got to come back. Thanks for joining us for another lesson. We hope that this message is a blessing for you and helps you grow towards a more mature understanding of God's word. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website at rockharborchurch.net. Until next time, remember, keep looking up for our redemption draws near.